In my wrestling and in my doubts, in my failures you won't walk out. Your great love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea. Oh, you are the peace in my troubled sea. In the silence you won't let go. In the questions your truth will hold. Your great love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea. Oh, you are the peace in my troubled sea. Tomorrow brings with each morning I'll rise and sing. My God's love will lead me through. You are the peace in my trouble sea. Oh, you are the peace in my trouble sea.
continue to praise our amazing God, we're going to join together in reading some powerful words from Ephesians 1, which you will see on the screens. As we gather together this morning, we pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give each of us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, 
power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come.
power of God that was in Christ is in us. As we continue in worship, take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here this day. So we're making good progress collecting jars. Uh, we had a bunch of them brought in this morning, so I, I didn't count them, but we had about 90 before today, and I would guess we're probably maybe bunching up to 150. So this is awesome. We'd like to have about 200 if possible. So if you have any more hang, lying around your house someplace that you're thinking, that eh, we probably won't use those this year, um, we would appreciate it. Uh, we'll be uh, explaining more about this on May 8th. But uh, we're getting uh, prepared for that in the coming weeks. Um, there are a couple of things I want to, I do want to mention to you. Uh, some things in your bulletin. There's an insert in here about Children's Church. And we're getting close to the point where we need sign-ups and we're finishing up those so we can make the schedule. So if you are able to assist in Children's Church, uh, everything is prepared for you. And you come, spend time with the children, teach a lesson, and uh, just be the presence of Christ to them. And uh, so we... We hope you'll have an opportunity to do that. And today also is the last day to sign up for the nursery. Uh, We didn't put sheets in the bulletin this week, but if you would like to sign up, um, just uh, jot down a piece of paper and uh, we'll get that to you. There might be some forms in the back, but I'm not sure about that. But this is the last day as the schedule will be made tomorrow. So if you can help with that, uh, please let us know today. I also want to uh, make a couple of uh, really important announcements. We have grown this week by a couple of uh, little ones, and we're happy to announce that Christian David Rohrbach was born on Monday to Andrew and Susie, and we congratulate them. And uh, on Thursday, Anne Elaine Jordan to Mike and Jill uh, was born, and we celebrate with them also and their families. And uh, it's, it's just such a great blessing to have so many children in our church, and it is a privilege. And uh, we don't take that lightly. And it's one of the reasons we do things like nursery and children's church and Sunday school and a variety of activities. And so we, we pray for these families and give thanks to God for this gift of new life. Dave Lewis is going to share uh, a few moments about a missions opportunity that he's involved with uh, throughout the summer. I've been asked to share a little bit about sports ministry and an upcoming trip that we have planned I want to begin with a brief analogy, one which I'm sure many of you have uh, heard before. But to place a hammer in the hands of a skilled carpenter, it can be very creative and building. But place that same hammer in the hands of a criminal, then it can be destructive and very harmful. The hammer is simply a tool, but I want to expand that a little further. Place that or take the uh, skilled carpenter... And if he or she does not utilize the hammer, if they ignore it, then it is a missed opportunity. And if that skilled carpenter becomes a criminal and uses that hammer to to destroy and to harm, then that is an abuse as well. I want to use that analogy in terms of the hammer is simply a tool, and sports, likewise, is a tool. It could be used in a very productive, creative way for kingdom purposes. 
But unfortunately, it can also be ignored and we can miss an opportunity. Or it can also be abused and misused and used for destructive purposes. At Houghton College, our athletic administration and coaches are committed to training our student-athletes to utilize their given sports as opportunities to serve kingdom purposes. We desire our athletes to understand that we can be used in God's service through the athletic endeavors that we pursue, that these gifts can be cultivated and utilized for godliness and for holiness and for building the kingdom. Our athletic teams have traveled to every continent except for Antarctica. We have visited more than 15 countries, and many of those countries multiple times in the past 18 years. It is an opportunity for us to utilize the tool, the platform of athletics, to share the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. So that through relational evangelism, we might be able to relate to people and through those relationships, share what's even more important than the love of the game, and that is the love of our Lord and Savior. In four weeks, the women's soccer team will be traveling to Romania and Austria. We'll travel with a sports ministry organization that is headquartered in Salem, Oregon, called Surge International. We'll be partnering with on-ground ministries already in Austria and Romania. It is our intention to serve them, to partner with them, to come alongside them, to help them in their existing ministries. We never go into a country where it's just us coming in and then we leave and nothing happens beyond that. We always partner with existing ministries and we help to produce or provide at least a shot in the arm for their, their ongoing work. And that's the part of the partnership. And we appreciate the partnership of this church who have been prayerfully supporting our teams and on many occasions also financially supporting us. And in our case, we'll utilize the sport of soccer in many ways through clinics, through informal soccer matches. We'll work with local churches. Our hope is also to work with the refugee communities in both countries. God is utilizing the, the tool of athletics, and we desire to, to not misuse it, to not ignore it, but to use it for kingdom purposes. And we thank you for being a part of that with us. Thank you. like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God from all that he has given to us.
If you'd like to uh, use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, uh, please come and join me as we pray together. Father, we come today and give thanks that you are our healer. You restore and redeem and renew. 
and you heal. This morning we bring to you all the burdens and the concerns of our lives, the hurts and the pains, the disappointments and the struggles, and we ask for your healing grace upon us. We think especially this morning of of, uh, Barb Rangel and Bill Duzema. We pray for Bob Jobert and Rich Reynolds, Calvin and Laurel Buecher, for Warren Woolsey and Bill Getty, for Phil Muecher, Mike Raybuck, for Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman, Bev Rett, for Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth, for Dick Gould and Crystal Blake and Emily Cricklar and others who may be on our minds today and ask for your healing grace upon them. Father, we, we thank you for the ministry of this church that allows us to use our gifts and from which we receive and are nurtured. This morning, we thank you for the elders of our church, for those who are in positions of leadership, and we pray that you will encourage them and bless them, and may they have your heart as they lead. May there be a a spirit of servanthood in each one. We thank you for the ministry of the churches around us, and today we pray for for St. Paul's Lutheran Church and Angelica, Pastor Hoyt. We thank you for the ministry of this church. Continue to encourage them. Draw them closer and closer together and make them a, a, a living witness of you to those around them. And Father, we pray for our nation. This week is time for uh, primary elections in our state. We ask for grace and wisdom. We pray for the ability to, for us to make good choices and for your help in this very difficult process of the politics of our nation. Father, we pray for the the nation beyond us, and we continue to pray for the people of Flint, Michigan, as they struggle with the water crisis. We pray that you will bring grace and healing to them. Father, we pray for places of conflict and war and violence in our nation and ask for your healing grace. And Lord, we pray for the world beyond us. Think, Father, this morning of those who are struggling after the earthquake in Ecuador yesterday. We pray, Father, for those who are grieving at the almost 100 deaths and for all who have lost and are injured and is trying to, to deal with it. And we pray, Father, for your gracious mercy in a very difficult situation. We pray, Father, for the ongoing ministry of your church around the world. And in a few weeks, a couple of months, the the people, uh, Global Partners missionaries, will be here in Houghton, every one of them, to be restored and renewed and to learn and to be bonded together in your grace. And we pray that you will bless this time together. And as we as a church support them and care for them and For all who are leading them, we pray that this will be a watershed moment for the outreach ministry of Global Partners. Father, we continue to pray for the church in places of the world where there's opposition and persecution. We think about the villages attacked in in Nigeria. Lord, we we are struggling to understand uh, all of the violence against your people, and yet we know that you said if they hated you, they will hate us. 
We pray, Father, for your grace in these difficult circumstances. Give healing and mercy to those who are grieving and injured and, quite frankly, living in the fear of another attack. We pray for your spirit to be so evident upon them. And as the local pastors reach out in relief and comfort and hope, may they minister your grace in these difficult times. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all blessing. Thank you for the strength that you give us each day, every moment of life. We pray all of this, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. Can you please stand for the reading of the gospel? The first time I read this, I started singing, so I'll try not to sing. Uh All the boys club boys might start singing, though. Um, Matthew 6, 19 through 34. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two, ser- two masters. Either you hate one and you love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It is not, more than, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you worry can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans ran after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. 
Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. I suspect most of us at one time or another have wondered, what's it going to be like in eternity? This place that's sometimes referred to as heaven or eternal life, um, what, what's that going to be like? Well, the reality is there's a lot about that that we do not know. There's a lot of hiddenness, a lot of mystery that God has chosen not to reveal to us. But there, at the same time, there's a lot that I think we do know. And a lot that I think we can, we can, we can bank on. And so we've been talking over these last few weeks about some of those dynamics, what some of that might look like. And, and, and I am convinced that eternity will not be some uh, disembodied experience in ethereal sort of nothingness, but the new heaven and new earth, the restored, redeemed earth that God created, it will be restored to what he intended it to be a creation, and then even beyond that. And I believe that we will have resurrected bodies, not just spirits, that the, that the, uh, the salvation of the world is not just about our souls. It is that, but it's about all of our being. It's like it's all of creation. And so we will live on this new heaven and new earth in restored, redeemed bodies that will seemingly have resemblances to these bodies, but also will be different. And we will live on this earth and it will be restored and renewed and what God intended and created it to be and then again some. And we will do work. We will create because that's what God does. We, part of being living in the being, beings in the image of God is that we do, we create, we work all for the glory of God. And that will run a whole gamut of things. But one of the things that I think probably is hard for us to, to think about is if we will have possessions in heaven, will we have stuff? Now, you know, we have a lot of stuff now, right? Uh, the, the comedian George Carlin, who uh, was popular when I was young, and you always have to listen to any comedian, but him as well, with a little bit of discretion. Uh, sometimes his language isn't the best, but he is pretty insightful and funny. And he's talking, to, I remember back years ago, remembering him talking about a little bit about stuff. And he said, I don't know about you, but I'm always looking for a place for my, to put my stuff. He said, it's really what life is all about. Isn't it finding a place for our stuff? That's what our houses are. It's just a place for our stuff. You know, you look around, it's just a pile of stuff with a cover on it. That's what our houses are. It's just stuff. And he said, when we leave our house, we lock up our house because we don't want people coming to take our stuff. Because they, they always take the good stuff when they do that, right? They don't take the junk. They don't, nobody wants our fourth grade arithmetic project that we have somewhere. Nobody wants that. They want the good stuff. And so we protect our stuff. And, and he said, isn't it fascinating? There's a whole industry that's been created to store our stuff. Because stuff's important to us. We all have stuff, and we want to protect our stuff and accumulate our stuff. It's life. We have stuff. And it's hard for us to imagine that we will have stuff in heaven. It just doesn't seem right, does it? It seems so earthly. 
But when you read the scriptures, it seems to me that in some form we will have possessions. There will be stuff in heaven. You look at Revelation chapter 21, and at the end of that, it talks, he's been talking about the New Jerusalem. He says, I saw no temple in the city. There's a city. There's something concrete there. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of the Lord illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light. The kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there's no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. And nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he says, they will, all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. If you look at Isaiah chapter 60, you find here another description of the eternal city. At the end of this chapter, verse 19, it says, No longer will you need the sun to shine by day. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Nor the moon to give its light by night, for the Lord your God will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set, your moon will not go down, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning will come to an end, and all your people will be righteous, and they will possess their land forever. For I will plant them there with my own hands in order to bring myself glory. The smallest family will become a thousand people, and the tiniest group will become a mighty nation. At the right time, I, the Lord, will make it happen." It sounds a very similar description here in Isaiah 60 is what we get in Revelation 21. And he says, they will possess their land forever. But if you look before that, he talks about, what do I see flying like clouds to Israel, like doves to their nests? They are ships from the ends of the earth, from lands that trust in me, led by the great ships of Tarshish. They're bringing the people of Israel home from far away, carrying their silver and gold. They will honor the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has filled you with splendor. Your gates will stay open day and night to receive the wealth of many lands, and the kings of the world will be led as captives in a victory procession. Something in what he's describing there feels like possessions, feels like things that they have. The people will bring these things into the city, and they will be there. And and, uh, we will have some kind of possessions. Now, when he talks about the ships of Tarshish bringing things, it reminds back to, I think it's Psalm 48, that talks about God destroying the ships of Tarshish. I think, I agree with Richard Mao, who says that while this place, when you talk about that, at destruction, it's a lot like when, God, when Scripture says the heaven and earth will pass away. It's not destroying what God has made as if it is evil. It is purifying it. It is, he talks about breaking up the ships. And it's, he, Mal makes the point that it, it's, it's not the breaking of a vase as much as it is like the breaking of a horse. Taming it. Purifying it. Allowing it to be what it was created to be. And this city that God creates where we will live has a sense of commerce and possessions But that's hard for us to understand because for us, so often, possessions are, I don't know, they get in the way for us, right? They they become almost idolatrous for us. And so you have the story of Luke 18 of the man who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, obey the commandments. And he says, I've already done all that. It's a pretty profound thing for him to say. And Jesus says, okay then, one more thing. Sell everything you have and give the money to the poor and come follow me. 
And Luke says the man walked away sorrowful because he had great wealth. He had a lot of stuff. And he didn't want to give it up. And that's how we tend to think of possessions. Because quite frankly, that's often our struggle, isn't it? Our struggle often is we have a lot of stuff and we don't want to give it up. But possessions in and of themselves are not evil. What we have is a gift of God. All the things that we possess are gifts that God has given us, either just outrightly or because we have worked and we have the ability to work and we've earned and we've gotten them, or maybe because we just happen to be the gift of being in the right place at the right time, being born into a, a family or a nation that, where we can have possessions. But everyone has something, and it's a gift of God. You look at the creation story and God says to Adam and says, God says to them, I give you, I give you, I give you. What is the great promise of Israel that keeps them, keeps their focus moving forward as they come out of Egypt? It is, I am bringing you into a land that you will possess. A land of milk and honey and blessing and great crops and fruit All of these things that you will have, and to describe living in great cities and being blessed with things, with stuff. Possessions are not in and of themselves evil. The problem is when possessions become, when when possessions are our master, that's when it becomes a problem. When, when possessions are things that enslave us instead of things that we enslave and use for good, that's where the problem really becomes an issue. And that's a problem for all of us. We are all tempted to, to forget that. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. Either you love the one and hate the other or you're devoted to the one and despise the other, but you cannot serve two masters. And when it comes to possessions, either we serve them or they serve us. But it can't be both. And if they serve us, then that's a sign that hopefully we are serving God. But often, but when we serve them, that's all we do. It's it's how we view it. It's our attitude toward them. In his book, Culture Making... Andy Crouch tells of writing one of the chapters, sitting in his, his family room on a winter afternoon with a fire going in the fireplace. And he said he stopped for a bit of his writing and just watched the fire. And he said just he loves to, the, the fire and the, the ambiance of that and to hear the crackling of the flames and the wood and to see the flames. And it's just, it, just, it's, it just invigorates him. But he said that's only because the fire is contained in a fireplace. If the fire were to jump out of the fireplace onto the wood floors into a, into a fire not place, he says, <laughs> there would be a totally different perspective about that. Because fire is intended to be in a fireplace, not in a fire not place. And he says, I don't know of anyone who just sits around reading a book when fire is all around them where it's not supposed to be. It's only good when it's in its place. And that's true of possessions and all the stuff that we have. 
It, it's good in its rightful place. The problem is, it so often gets out of place. And that's our struggle. And it takes a resurrection perspective to keep our possessions in the right place. And instead of seeing possessions as evil that we have to run from, we see them as gifts of God that we use for his glory and for his purposes and for his kingdom. And that's the resurrection perspective. And it has a lot to do, our perspective of possessions from from the viewpoint of the resurrection and, and eternal life is both about receiving and giving. One of the things I think that we is helpful to us to think about the resurrection perspective of possessions and stuff is that we have a tendency to say no to more. I probably shouldn't admit this, but I, I love gadgets. You know, I mean, and so one of my favorite stores, I love going into kitchen stores. I know it probably lessens your view of you. Some of you, some of you may heighten your view of me. I don't know. But, you know, I walk into a kit, one of those kitchen stores, and it's just filled with gadgets. And my pulse begins to race a little bit because I'm thinking, look at all this stuff, gadgets. I love this stuff. Not quite as much as if I walk into an electronics store or Barnes & Noble. But, you know, it, it begins to, to go a little bit because I'm looking at all this stuff, and I just love messing with those gadgets. And I have learned that not getting all those gadgets is a good thing. Because you get them, you use them once, and then they sit in the drawer for the next 15 years. And I'm, I'm learning that while getting things is not bad in and of itself, there are a lot of times when the best option, the resurrection perspective is to say, I don't really need that. I don't really, I can spend whatever resources I have in a better way. It's hard because we are continually thinking about, about getting, about consuming. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, depending on however the environment around us describes that and values that. There is something in us that thinks a little bit more would be good. All of us are, in some way or another, John Rockefellers. You know, who was asked, what would it take to make you happy? And he said, a little bit more. And we all wrestle with that. Do you remember the story we read as children? Maybe you read it to your children. Maybe it was read to you. The story, I know an old lady. Do you remember that story? I brought the book. I'm pretty sure this is Cindy's copy. It's 1961. Do you remember that story? I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed a fly. I guess she'll die. I know an old lady who swallowed a spider that wriggled and wriggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed the, fly to fly, the spider to catch the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. I guess she'll die. I know the lady who swallowed a bird, swallowed the bird to catch the spider, the wriggled and wriggled and tickled inside her, swallowed the spider to catch the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. I guess she'll die. And it goes on and on and on until you get to the end of it. It says, I know an old lady who swallowed a cow. I don't know how she swallowed a cow. She swallowed a cow to catch the pig, swallowed the pig to catch the goat, swallowed the goat to catch the dog, swallowed the dog to catch the cat, swallowed the cat to catch the bird, swallowed the bird to catch the spider that wriggled and wriggled and tickled inside her, she swallowed the spider to catch the fly. I have no idea why she swallowed the fly. I guess she'll die. Yeah, right, thank you. I've been working on that, yeah. Actually, this is one of my favorite books, so I know. And then you get to the very last one, it says, I know the lady who swallowed a horse. She's dead, of course. 
right? I had never really thought about the implications of that story. First of all, that maybe we shouldn't be reading that story to our children. And there are lots of those, right? Grimm's fairy tales and things. No wonder they have nightmares. But the other part of it is, I hadn't thought about this until I read Matthew Sleeth's book, Serve God and Save the Planet. A lot of thoughtful things in that book. But he brings up this story, this loony limerick, and he says it is a metaphor about our desire to consume. That here's a woman who, has, who swallows a fly for whatever reason and thinks it might satisfy her hunger or something, and it doesn't. And so what does she do? She eats something else that maybe will take care of that. And that doesn't work. So something else to take care of that and something else to take care of that. Eventually, it leads to death. And we are always tempted to that. We are continually tempted to think just a little bit more will make me happy. Just a little bit more will, will fill that yearning and that longing. Just a little bit more. If I just had that. I just had that. And the question that we ought to be asking instead of what will fill me is, will this bring me closer to God? Will this, will this help me to be a better servant of God? Will this help me help other people? And, and that doesn't, not every, not every purchase fits those questions. But if we just started asking those questions, I think it would help to clarify a lot of the things that we do to gain, keep getting possessions. They're good questions to ask. They're resurrection questions to ask. And it's not meant to put guilt on us, even though it might. It's instead just meant to begin thinking about resurrection. And I'll, be, I'll tell you, it is a struggle for me to not want more. It's a struggle for all of us. It's a part of the sinful nature in us to think if we just had a little bit more, it would do what we wanted to do. But the reality is we all know it doesn't because we keep wanting a little bit more. So I, if we asked a few of those questions... Maybe it would clarify some of the ways in which what we do about getting possessions. But there's also the other side of it, and that is what we do with what we have. It's not just about how we get what we have, but it's what we do with what we have. And a resurrection perspective of possessions is always thinking about generosity. Always thinking about generosity. And the reason that's a resurrection perspective is because that's the spirit of God. And if God is anything, he is generous. And we describe his generosity in a whole variety of ways. Loving kindness, faithfulness, goodness, patience. All of it is about God being generous. I mean, from the beginning of time, God has been generous. The generosity he gives to Adam and Eve. The generosity he gives to Abraham and Moses and Israel and all the people through the ages. It is the nature of who God is so that John can write, For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. And I'm convinced that in, in the resurrection life, uh, everything about us will be generosity. We get a glimpse of that in the early church. In Acts chapter 4, 
It talks to us about the early church and says they were all united in heart and mind, in one spirit. And what did that mean? It meant whatever they had, they shared. Their mindset was, what's mine is yours. Period. And everybody's need was met. What's mine is yours. One of my friends in in college and I... uh, in the summer after we graduated, loaded everything we owned into his 1970 Datsun 510. Very small car, and it was packed to the gills, every, all our possessions. And uh, we drove from Oregon to Kentucky to go to seminary. And when we got there, we both got jobs in Lexington, which is about a 30-minute drive from Wilmore. And we both had jobs there, but he's the only one that had a car. And I still remember him coming to me after we got there, handing me a set of keys and saying, look, my car is yours. Period. I've never forgotten that. Sometimes it's made me feel guilty because I didn't have that spirit of generosity about my things. And there are times where I I keep remembering that because I want to be generous like that. I want to hold my stuff with, with a light grip. I don't want to clutch it. I want to, I want to hold it lightly. I want to be like Paul commends to, to Timothy, and he says that the people in the church, they, they have the spirit of always being ready to share, always being ready to give. They don't have to think about it. They don't have to process it. It's just their default to be generous because of Christ in them, because that's a resurrection perspective. And I think, part of me is a little hesitant to say this, but I I say it because it's true, I think at least. I think our generosity begins right here. It begins in the church and, and giving to the church. You look at the Old Testament and God says to the people of Israel, bring the tithes into the storehouse, bring it to the church. Bring it to the tabernacle. Bring it to the temple. That's not all we do, but it starts there. And it's only our generosity that allows us to have a church. Have a building with lights that turn on and and heat and a building that has rooms and we take care of it. And we have Sunday school materials and we're able to run a food pantry. And we're able to give to people who can't pay their heating bills and other things. And we're able to do all the things that we do as a church because you're generous. And it, it starts here, being generous. I believe in that principle of storehouse tithing. I know not everyone does, but I believe that, that our 10% tithes should come to the church. And then we use other money to give to missionaries and mission organizations and other good, fine charities in our world and other ways that we assist people. Really, the bottom line is that we look at what we give and we talk about generosity. We just, you know, Friday was the day we turned in our taxes. You know, for some of you, it may be on a good day. I had to pay a little bit this year, so, you know, it's a dark day. But, it, but it's, it's a day when, we, when you go through that process, you see the stark reality of how generous we are. And it's right in front of us in black and white what we did. And it doesn't define everything because it's not just money. It's our time. It's our energy. It's our resources. It's our possessions. 
But all of it creates the spirit of generosity. And what would be so awesome to me is that when people think about this gathering of believers, one of the first things that come to my, comes to their mind is those people are generous to a fault, if that's possible. Those people are generous, and not just with each other, but with everyone. The spirit of Christ, the spirit of generosity that we give and we share. And it's not a legalistic burden. You know, sometimes sometimes it feels like maybe it's a legalistic burden. And granted, being generous and it feels legalistic and burdensome is better than not being generous because we don't want to feel legalistic or burdensome. But it doesn't have to be that. Because I'm convinced that being generous like Christ is freedom. Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. He lo- because it makes because it, it brings glory to him when we give out of a sense of joy. And every time I have every time I've been stingy, it doesn't bring joy. And every time I've been generous, it does bring joy. It brings a sense of freedom. You think about little children. You can, you can picture them, right? Their arms around their toys, yelling, mine, mine, mine. If you look at them, do you see joy and freedom on their faces? No. What do you see? You see fear, anxiety, but not joy and not freedom. Because selfishness doesn't breed joy and freedom. Generosity does. And we're simply modeling the Spirit of God in us about being generous. And we can do that because, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, God takes care of us. You know, He knows what we need, and He takes care of us. And don't, He says, don't store up treasures and on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Store up your treasures in heaven where none of that stuff's going to happen. And he goes on at the end of the chapter and says, because God knows that you need food and clothing and shelter and he'll take care of you. And there's such great freedom in that. You know, we live in a, a culture where there's this movement about downsizing. If you... Notice some of the television shows are on all about tiny houses. And, and there's all kinds of shows about tiny houses and people downsizing. And I was thinking about that just recently because we it was just about a year ago that we remodeled our offices. And um, it, was, it, was a, it was a great thing. If you've been over there, you see that, you know, the, the offices look so nice. But most all of us had an adjustment to the size of our offices in order to add an extra office and to add the conference room. And my office went from being about 375 square feet to about 150 square feet. And I was happy to do that most of the time. But I can tell you there were times I'd walk over there and I'd look around the building and I'd see the walls up and I'm thinking, wow, this is really going to be small. This is going to be different. I kind of like that big office. It sort of gave you a sense of of, uh, I don't know, uh, importance, you know, to have a big office, right? They have couches in there and things. And I realized right away that 
You know, I, I, in the old office, I had about 28 feet, linear feet of shelf, bookshelf space. In the new one, I have about 19 feet of bookshelf space. So I realized something had to happen. So I started going through my books and thinking, okay, I don't need all these books. And I gave away a whole bunch of books. And um, I had six file cabinets in that other, off, other office. My new one, if I had six file cabinets in that office, I wouldn't probably be able to turn around. So I thought, I can't do that. So I spent time and others helped me digitizing all those files. And I got rid of a whole lot of stuff. Steve said he thought maybe the church was going to rise up off of his foundation because all of us are throwing away so much, taking to the recycling so much paper. And, you know, they, we had a lot of furniture in that other office. Now I have two chairs. And I'll be honest with you, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about that. The first week I'm in my new office, I'm thinking, this is the greatest thing in the world. I cannot tell you how much I love, love, love my new office. I love the fact that it it pushed me to downsize. It pushed me to think about what I really need. It, it, the other place was great, but it felt like just a place to meet. This place feels like a place to think and to study and to pray. And everything about it, I just love it. And I would never go back. In fact, a part of me was thinking, we wish we would have done this 10 years ago. It is a gift. And I want to thank the trustees for putting that plan together. And the conference room is awesome. But what I'm discovering is this This new sense is freedom. And it inspired Cindy and me to go home and we started going through stuff at home and and, and we've got a big pile of things that if you come to the yard sale in a couple, in a few weeks down here, you can take it home with you. And then it'll be your stuff. There is freedom in being generous. And giving away, and letting go. In his book, when it all when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. It's a great book. John Ortberg has a chapter in that book that's titled "Remember, Your Stuff Is Not Yours." I think I kind of disagree with that. I think our stuff is ours. In Acts chapter five, the disciples have been giving, selling stuff, and land and giving it to each other. And here, Peter looks at Ananias and Sapphira who sold land, brought the money, laid it at the disciples' feet and said, this is all the proceeds, only it wasn't all the proceeds. They kept back a lot of it. And Peter says, look, it was your land to sell or do what you wanted with it. It was your money after you sold it to do what you wanted with it. And I think when God gives us and blesses us, It's ours. We can do what we want with it. The problem is we think it doesn't matter what we do with it. And that is where Ortberg is right. It does matter. It matters now and it matters for all eternity. What we do with it. And my question is, if in eternity... What we have, whatever that is, we will share and we will be generous and we will use it all for the glory of God and for helping everybody else give glory to God. Then why wouldn't we start that now? And that's the question I'm asking myself.
And the question I'm asking each of us Heavenly Father, thank you for all of the gifts that you give us. And you know our struggle. You know all of our struggle about things and stuff, possessions. Lord, set us free that we might enjoy and use and bring glory to you and help others through all the ways in which you've blessed us. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.